Lady Beatrice, have you wept all this while? Yea, and I will weep a while longer. I will not desire that. You have no reason. I do it freely. Surely I do believe your fair cousin is wronged. Ah, uh, how much might the man deserve of me that would right her? Is there any way to show such friendship? A very even way, but no such friend. May a man do it. It is a man's office, but not yours. I do love nothing in the world so well as you. Is that not strange? As strange as the thing I know not. It were as possible for me to say I loved nothing so well as you, but believe me not, and yet I lie not. I confess nothing, nor I deny nothing. I am sorry for my cousin. By my sword, Beatrice, thou lovest me. Do not swear and eat it. I will swear by it that you love me, and I will make him eat it that says I love not you. Will you not eat your word? With no sauce that can be devised to it. I protest I love thee. Why then, God forgive me. What offense, sweet Beatrice. You have stayed me in a happy hour. I was about to protest I loved you. And do it with all thy heart. I love you with so much of my heart that none is left to protest. Come, bid me do anything for thee. Kill Claudio. <laughs> Not for the wide world. You kill me to deny it. Farewell. The theater, the theater. Theater. To be or not to be. Theater. Theater. The plane's the thing. All right, y'all. How you feeling? How your bods? Fine and dandy like sour candy. Sour candy. I like that. I'm dancing. I just took a shot of French fried onions. French fried onions? You took a shot of them? Yes. Did you pour them in a shot glass or did you palm them in and... I poured them in my mouth from the oh, container. Oh, you just went for the full gullet <laughs> shot. Got it. Yeah, you know, respect. That's a really good segue into Welcome to Theater Theater, the theater <laughs> podcast for theater people made by three theater nerds from the LA theater scene. I'm Jay Bailey Burcham. I'm CJ Merriman. And I'm Scott Leggett. And we're all members of the Sacred Fools Theater Company. And each week we get together and we talk about plays and playwrights that we have strong opinions on. And we discuss, debate, and disseminate all over them and this is a special postseason bonus miniseries this is our second episode of the miniseries on shakespeare's comedies and of course with us again we have the incredible professor of voice and speech at the stella adler academy of acting in los angeles tim kopax hey tim i'm q and on i am q no. you are q yeah. are I you dropping q. it now i'm <laughs> dropping right now i am q on this podcast I'm half yeah. honored. I'm half honored. And it's entirely made up. It's almost as if if you're anonymous, you can be anybody. <gasps> Wait, are you telling you us as Q that that this whole thing has been bullshit, that QAnon is all a lie? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's it's almost it's almost like if you just just say random things to desperate people, they'll believe you. Yeah. Have you guys ever heard of Kill Shakespeare, the comic? 
No. No. There's a comic book called Kill Shakespeare. And oh, it's like, yes. I Vaguely. Yes. Yeah, it's like the Avengers with a bunch of Shakespeare mm-hmm. characters. Oh, that's um, kind of cute. I've never read it, but I was looking at some of the art and I was super into it. And it made me think of this series that actually the way I got involved with Shakespeare Youth Fest was I went and auditioned for a show called Outspoken. And it was a play um, where all they sent me was a Falstaff monologue, the sack monologue. Okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, weird that you wouldn't send me something from the play. Okay, you want to see Shakespeare. So I showed I had no idea what this play was. And I had some, a, a director friend of mine told me to go to it. So I went and I did the Falstaff monologue and they cast me on the spot and handed me a script. And I went home and read it and I was like, this is fucking amazing. It is about every one of Shakespeare's characters who were ever imprisoned as if they were in the clink together. Oh, right. Huh. Super Ruby. fun. It was that really fun. fun. And like Joan of Arc is there and Falstaff is there and uh, oh, tons of people. I can't Richard remember. too, yeah, yeah. Richard, it's, it's like, it's, it's this great thing. So then the writer, Blair Barron, the artistic director of Shakespeare Youth Fest, she then wrote, uh, she made it a whole trilogy. So the second one is called Unspoken and it takes place in a green room and it's all of the characters who normally get cut and they're waiting to go on for their scenes and they get told that they're not that they've been cut from the show Sexy. but the idea is that they're not actors they're the characters waiting to go on right <laughs> but lady m is backstage because she has to cross through this green room to get to her dressing room so she's there as this like diva character dealing with everything and then there's just a stage manager and wow. it is one of the funniest, most fun shows. I've seen it that's both with fun. adults and children do it. Oh, that and sounds it's amazing. So fun. And then the third one is called Ill Spoken. And it's all of the ones that she, all of the characters that she feels like get a bad rap or the ones that have like through time sort of um, been considered like evil characters or bad characters. And it's set in a courtroom and they all get to basically give their plead their case, plead their case and statement. And it's, it's as a trilogy really exquisitely done and should be produced it's really fun it's really good stuff and she's very smart she just knows every one of the plays way too well it's they're just like in her brain sometimes she'll just be like you know that part in this she is actually one of those people we kind of joked about that in the first miniseries tim where you're like Nobody actually knows the act scene of mostly. She, for some reason, sometimes does. She'll be like, oh, yeah, that's act four, scene two. And you're like, "Ah, what? (laughs) And then you're like, look it up, and it's there. And it's just because she's been directing these kids for over a decade and has done all the shows, and it's just sort of in their brain now. So I get it, but they haven't done all the shows. I shouldn't say that. They haven't done all the shows. They've done almost all the shows, not the whole canon. But that sends us into our talk about Midsummer Night's dream yeah now whose pick was this mine Leggett's. that's right scott scott why'd you pick this um for a couple of reasons i'm working on a project with a gentleman named michael shaw fisher who is an award-winning uh writer and composer and we're working on something midsummer's related and we com- had worked on a show called skullduggery which was the musical prequel to hamlet which uh featured uh our own cj merriman <laughs> Uh, hey. uh, so anyway, so I had sort of um, I'd been playing with it and reading it and, and revisiting it, but it was the first show that I remember reading about the history of it and 
that that's what inspired me like uh, so like specifically reading about and i never got to see and i uh, there's filmed stuff from it but was peter brooks version of it which he did in in the, oh. in the 60s and he did it in a blank white box at the royal hmm. shakespeare company he wow. did it with all masculine fairies he did it with circus tricks and trapeze artistry and stuff hmm. he 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 kind of gets credit for being the first to double up Theseus and Oberon and Hippolyta and Titania, which mm. is kind of pretty commonplace now, sure. but, mm-hmm. but it, it makes perfect sense, but it had Patrick Stewart and Ben Kingsley in it. And like <laughs> reading about, and this is sort of as I'm deep into my acting and now just putting my foot into directing stuff. So I'm thinking about how to, how you play it as a director. And I was like, Holy shit. It's such a simple thing, which is, Peter Brook's whole thing is start with a blank stage and put in what you need to tell the story and then go from there. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's always just been a magical play to me in, in it's literally about magic and stuff, but it, that it's so, and we talked about this in part one, it's so utterly malleable. You don't have to fuck with this too much. You can be right. weird and off the wall with it as you want you can, you know, set it in a time and place if you want. Um, and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, but it it really doesn't matter as much in this one as it does in, in some others. In other words, if you set it in Nazi Germany, as long as there's a forest where everybody could escape reality, then then I don't know uh, why you'd want to do that. I don't know why. I'm just saying, but you could. If I may draw a, a line between two things that a. most... I may draw a. Um, a line between two things that most people will not draw a line between, but is is kind of similar in a way. I happen to uh, have been in a, a Midsummer Night's Dream, which the, the setting of which was the British Raj in India. Mm. Um which is kind of like, you know, slow Nazis. Um, sure. It's just like slow Nazis, right? Yeah, it's like, they're oh, yeah, we'll slightly more polite. Like, yeah. Yeah, we'll take it's, our time. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's Nazis with monocles. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, Nazis but, with class. But it became this thing where it's like the, the lovers were the British folk and then the gods and goddesses and the fairies were the traditional kind of Indian uh, gods and goddesses of the era. And it really worked in a way. As long as you have a group of people who don't know shit about themselves sure. um, and as long as you have a group of people that are very in touch with themselves, the thing works. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There's a couple film versions of it. Specifically, there's like the the Kevin Klein, uh, yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer one, which yeah. I don't know that I've seen. Um, maybe I I watched it, as a kid. It is. It's it's weirdly fucking cut. It's like ninety huh. minutes, as I recall. It's well, been a while. Yeah. Um, and they tried to do this sort of nineties uh, version of steampunk thing with sure. it. Sure. I remember sort of there being missed. sort of a like Alice in Wonderland live yeah, kind of vibe almost. to it. Yeah. I, I want to say cutting cutting Midsummer Night's Dream to 90 minutes is impressive because this play is massive with a cap on it, it really if you is. uncut it, it's like three and a half hours. It's almost as oh, long really? as Hamlet. Yeah. It, it's it, it's it's yeah it's hmm. surprisingly long. Um because you have, you have three you have plots four, effectively yeah. Four really well yeah. I mean, depending if you want to consider breaking up the lovers, but because you have you you have you have Theseus and and Hippolyta, and then you've got 
the mechanicals, then you got right. the lovers, then you've got all the fairy stuff. You got Titania and Oberon doing the, the fairy stuff. So it gets well, um, and and I think that this is probably why well, what you're bringing up, Scott, with Theseus and Oberon is probably why Peter Brook did it. Is that you see Theseus and Hippolyta at the beginning of the play, and then you don't see their mother fucking asses until Act Five. No, so it's just everybody do... losing their shit over these wedding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like like you see them Act One, they talk about there's going to be a wedding, and then Act Five, the wedding happens, and so you have to remind the audience at a certain point that like. Oh yeah, hey, remember when we started this play? There were these other two nerds. Yeah, we got to bring them back on stage because they threw us a couple bucks. You know, but you can you can have such fun, I think, with the wizarding wizard of Ozing of it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, there's the this really movie. famous production um, in 1934 in uh, Hollywood at the Hollywood Bowl, where basically yeah. Reinhardt or whatever his name, Reinhardt, yeah. Yeah. basically made a production that did so well that they made a movie out of it within a year. And there's this kind of amazing story that goes along with it where if you went and saw it, they did a opening scene to it that was live on stage before the movie. So right. if you saw it up the coast of California, you might have seen that because it toured around California, cool. which is super cool. It was Burt Lahr as bottom right cowardly lion is bottom yeah the, the cast is amazing it was the first hollywood shakespeare movie right huh. and it's it's pretty cool it's warner brothers full production uh budget and everything like that very interesting can we talk about casting for a second sure Sh yeah, yeah sure so there was this dude named william kemp who they hypothesized played dogberry bottom and falstaff oh wow in yeah, the, back in the day, and one thing, all very similar. Yeah, well, He's yeah, in yeah. Shakespeare. Well, that character's in Shakespeare in Love, isn't it, William Kemp? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, Bill Kemp. Yeah, William Kemp. It's it's. I, I find it really fascinating because a lot of a lot of the folks that I learned Shakespeare from uh, really do relate the reality of Shakespeare's plays to the identity of the fact that there was a guy who is writing plays for a company of actors. And you can kind of look and go like, oh, there's the fat, funny guy roll. Oh, there's the fat, funny guy roll again. Oh, there's the fat, funny guy roll a third time across a bunch of different plays. And if you look at the very language and the punctuation that appears in those roles, it's almost as if it's the same person speaking over and over again. And it's kind of fascinating. And you know who else appears to be the fat, funny guy? Yeah. Me. Iago in Othello. Oh, that would be interesting you, as hell. The tragedy of Othello makes so much more sense when you have somebody, the same guy who plays John Falstaff, come out on stage and talk to the audience and say, man, can you believe this guy believes me? And the audience looks at him and goes, yeah, because I believed you. You know, right. and a lot of the times Iago is played by this like, like ha 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 character and we all sit there and wonder why does why does othello believe this guy but isn't cast... iago played by gilbert godfrey <laughs> <laughs> i'm just seeing iago and only can yeah. uh, kenneth Branagh and and, and gilbert yeah. godfrey are the only two that have ever played but no that makes perfect sense sorry Tim, yeah because... i was with you tim uh, it yeah, would be it, it would be because yeah the the funnier the more charming 
the Iago is, then the the harder that fall becomes. Absolutely. CJ, have you ever seen a production or been in a production of this? Oh my God, have I seen a production of this? So yeah. in 2005, I saw the RSC do it in Stratford upon Avon. Oh. Um, I guess it was had a lot of local jokes in it that the audience was getting way more than me. It was set in a junkyard in Birmingham. It was definitely Bottoms Play. Alabama. Everyone was yes, Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama. Right. Um. Everyone was really stoked on Bottom, but I have to say like one of my personal dream roles from the show has always been Puck. But the thing that kind of intimidates me about Puck is everyone always kind of does it the same way. And my whole thing is like, I would want to figure out something unique or something that's more me. This fucking Puck in this show was, he was like an older guy balding with a beer belly and anytime he was called out on stage he would just kind of trip out on stage he was wearing <laughs> like a dirty wife beater the whole time yeah and it was like it was just it was my favorite puck that i have ever ever seen i love that and that just goes to show you cj that you can if you have a dream role it doesn't if you i can have play a, director, a 21 year old but that's what i'm saying is like if you have a dream role and you have a director who sees you in it it's yours you right know? yeah and, well, and oh, and he's a fair it's a fairy it, the gender doesn't matter. The size doesn't matter. You do whatever you want with it. Like, yeah, that's, what is a fairy? Right. I don't even know. What yeah. Is, yeah, the, you know? the <laughs> other thing um, that really stuck out to me about this performance was the whole show opened up and there were two people in full armor sword fighting. And you literally felt the whole audience go like, who the fuck is this? What, what show did we come see? And then it ended up being the, who is it? Theseus and... Hippolyta at the top. They were sparring with one another. Uh -huh. And that's how the show Sexy. opened. She yeah, it was really cool. the Amazon. Like, she's, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> because I've always been annoyed by the pucks that do uh, what I call the grad school stance. It's, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> the Peter see, like, it's, 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 M it's MFA. It's just like, let's see how low we can go, how low our squad is. And that oh, now, now they're engaged. And it's, it's like the Peter know? Pan of it all, right? It's the like, right. <laughs> you know, I'm looking for my shadow on the ground. And it's like, yeah. okay, cool. But you can, <laughs> I've seen, I've seen Dead Poet Society. I know how it's supposed to be played. You know, that kind of thing. I, I agree. Real quick, I saw a production uh, of this in OP, uh, original pronunciation. Mm -hmm. uh, it was at, uh, no, you University... brought this up in part one, so yeah. Yeah, this was at the University of Kansas, okay. uh, which I went to before Hogwarts. The Jayhawks. The Jayhawks, that's right. I had a friend who was a fairy in it, and uh, she was a freshman, so it was a big deal that she got cast in the main stage, and it was this whole thing, you know, we were like, wow. Um, and it was this, we went in, and it was in the round, and they had made the whole big auditorium into this fairy forest, and it was really cool, and I was really excited to be there. And I sit down, and I open the playbill, <laughs> and I like to read bios. Okay, I'm a bio reader. So I, I, it says that this guy is a, is a teacher at the school and i was like oh let's see who he's playing he's playing oberon oh cool so there's a teacher a professor who is playing one of the roles as kind of like a let me show you how it's done it, it uh -huh. happens in educational theater all the time i have oh, no problem girl yeah <laughs> i i have no problem with it i really don't because i've seen productions i i saw a uh, dice art who it was like I yeah because Oh God! Yeah, no, because no, but but it's true that like like I didn't want to see a student play dice art in Equus. I wanted to see the professor do it, you know. So sure. it's like right. that kind of thing. But it also turns out that the voice teacher 
Tim, the voice teacher <laughs> is playing bottom. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that's two huge roles to just hand to, you know, faculty. Yeah, faculty, but okay. <laughs> and then also Hippolyta. Wow. And I was like, wow, okay, so three. So, okay, that's fine. That's like, it is what it is. But then the show happens and it's original pronunciation, which I wasn't ready for and not told about beforehand. Oh, come on. Which. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let it out. Here's Let the it thing. Out. <laughs> Work it out. Work it I, out. I'm all, I'm all for the idea of it for educational theater purposes. But to sell tickets to it, when you can't do it, first of all, when it's real bad and everyone's trying a little too hard and the bottom is bottom already. And this is my big problem with this role. Okay. I'm, I'm currently playing bottom in a zoom production of fucking midsummer and I'm, it's a whole thing. I hate zoom theater, but when you cast someone who already is bottom as bottom, it's like when you cast somebody who already is a pretentious actor as a pretentious actor. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Which That's we've all insane. seen shows that where that happens. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I just I thought think, of one of me. Mm-hmm. I just thought of one that we've yeah, all seen. We've all saw and we're all like, no, no, okay. Yeah. When you cast a when you cast somebody who is already him, it is so apparent because they are just like oozing with the living for the fact that they're playing this role and they're just like uh, and they're just like jizzing all over the stage and you can feel it and not in the way you want to see bottom played right. you know it right. I, yeah. I don't know and that's just my opinion oh, uh, i have two things to say one there's one piece of wisdom that was imparted to me at one point in time which is you can never cast the person who is the role because they can never see what that person does right right you can never joke yeah, they don't get the joke and they never see the action that that character is taking because they themselves are that action. Yeah. Um, you have to cast somebody who's close to or exact opposite of that role and then they can kind of manipulate around it. Um, uh, I'm going to yeah. shut up completely about Midsummer after this, but the one other thing I wanted to say yeah. is that I it was the first show I ever saw at Shakespeare Youth Fest before I started working there. And the kid who played Bottom, who now is about to play our Richard III next season awesome. uh, for his senior year of high school. At the time, he was in seventh grade. And he, at the time, basically was completely unable to be understood. His speech was so – he has a lot of slack him. jaw. And he had, yeah, and he's, he's neurodiverse, and he's brilliant, and he's one of my favorite people on this planet. But he, you could not understand a word he said at the time. But they gave him Bottom. They were like, we are, we are taking this huge risk because this kid like loves Shakespeare and he asked for this role and we were like, wow, okay. So we gave it to him. I got to tell you, and, and this is not a slight against him. This is just true. And I've told him this to his face and he laughed and we had a good time about it. It was like watching a gibberish production, uh, a performance of Bottom and it blew my mind. I was laughing huh. the whole time because he knew what he was saying. He got the joke. Mm-hmm. So he went all the way with it. And I was, we were, the whole audience was just 
crying, laughing, but you could not understand yeah. a it's word a, he was saying. It was amazing. It's, it's kind of joyful in a way. Like, I feel as though in my heart that the people who truly love Shakespeare, if Shakespeare were to resurrect out of the grave and come back and see that production and be like, this is not what I anticipated, that if people who truly love Shakespeare's work would look at poor dead Uncle Bill and be like, go fuck yourself, dude. You're 700 years old. You can eat my asshole. Because this is theater that's really happening. Now and, I'm hungry. Yeah, <laughs> now I'm hungry, right? Uh, my second thought is, Bailey, I want to express my really heartfelt condolences that you have to do Zoom theater. Um, <laughs> it's trash. And my, and my third thought is, uh, CJ, the chain smoke and merriment, Yes. Ooh, she's a whore. What do you yeah. think about Chain the women? Whore. I want I want you to speak on behalf of your entire gender. All chain smoking you, whores. Yeah. All, all 50, <laughs> I want you to speak on behalf of 50% of this planet. Yeah. What do you think about the female roles in Midsummer Night's Dream? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. I did Midsummer Night's Dream when I first moved out here. It was the first play that I ever Ooh. did. And like I said before, I played Lysander. It was in studio stage, which some of you might know where that is on Western. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's literally like a 25 seat theater. The guy that played Hermia with me is True Tran, which he's he was in Tropic Thunder and Newsroom. <laughs> and then and Love then um, he, then there was one night that uh, shows over and this very nice man walks up to me and takes my hand. And he said, you did a wonderful job. And then the director came back with her mouth hanging open. She's like, Julian Sands just said you did a good job, CJ. <laughs> oh, nice. nice. So nice. that's what I say on behalf of women. I'm fucking awesome. <laughs> we oh. know. Julian Sands says so. No, I mean, I think the, the same problems apply to, to these female characters that apply to any of the Shakespeare's. You know, I think you, you, there's also an attempt in, by characters to humiliate other characters. Like, Oberon's trying to humiliate her, yeah. um, to Tanya, and you know that's why he's trying to. But again, but you can switch it up, you can change it up, and then that makes all the, the difference in the world. You can just cross gender it. Like I, I, I think it's one of the most malleable ones, and that's why I picked it. And I've well, gotten to do it. I've gotten to do an okay production and play bottom, and that was great. I want to mm, play. Oberon. Oh, cool! I want to play Oberon one day. That'd but be fun. It, yeah, yeah. And I've seen like I saw an amazing college production of it that just was like, what? It's so simple and elegant and just well performed, just rocked out. Like, let's go. Let's do this. And cool. um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, the reason why the reason why I asked it is is because Helena, to me, is one of the most fascinating characters in Shakespeare, because Demetrius in what is this fucking Act Two, Scene One says is Helena is like, you come on, you drew me into this woods, you you know you like me, and Demetrius says, do, do I entice you? Do I speak you fair, or rather, do I not, in plainest truth, tell you that I do not, nor I cannot love you? And Helena responds. And even for that, do I love you more? I am your spaniel. And Demetrius, the more you beat me, I will fawn on you. Use me but as your spaniel. Spurn me, strike me, neglect me, lose me, only give me leave. Unworthy as I am to follow you, what worser place can I 
beg in your love and yet a place of high respect with me than to be used as you use your dog. I mean, women do crazy things when men sleep with them and don't text them back the next morning. Don't text I mean, them back. But, but I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think both of those women have a moment in the play where I'm like, boy, women have been going through this shit for a long time. Well, sure. yeah, I mean, Centuries, that's one, it's, one of the, it's one of the big things about the play. It's, it's about love, but it's about the dark side of love. It's about obsession and it's about loss of identity in a lot of ways like yeah. and, and so i think you you know good productions will lean on that i mm -hmm. agree and loss of identity at the very end when the fact that hermia lysander and helena are free from any sort of magical spell but demetrius is specifically not released from the, the magical spell the yeah yeah demetrius is still in it and he's still under the spell right he's still out. under magical spell to be in love with helena Thank you for being a friend. All right, guys, <laughs> yes, we have ready, a ready, Golden ready. Girls trivia moment right here. All right, yes. we got a question. CJ Merriman from last episode has 20 points leading. Nobody else has any points right now. As what singing duo did Sophia and Dorothy appear at a local talent show? <sighs> appear as at a local Sunny and Cher. That's right. That's correct. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Thank you for being a friend, CJ. You now have 40 <laughs> points. Uh, B. Arthur does a good share. Yeah, it's actually a really solid episode. Uh, <laughs> highly recommend it. I I want to say season two or three. It's like an earlier moment. May I suggest that we pour one out for our homie, Sonny Bono? Yeah, well, let's pour yeah. one out for all three of the deceased Golden Girls as well, okay? So yeah, 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 yeah. For all of them. All right, so that leads us into much ado about nothing. All right, now it's like Seinfeld, right? It's a play about nothing. Yeah. Why the fuck did you choose this one, Siege? I want to know. Yeah. I, just, I just really like it. I've always really enjoyed this show. I love Beatrice. I love Benedict. And I mean, honestly, I love that 1993 movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. That Kim did. But we'll it's, it. just, we'll it's just one of my favorites out of all the comedies, I think. It always well, has there been. Are a lot of There are a lot of Shakespeare scholars and Shakespeare non-scholars who, after reading exactly 10 sentences, will tell you that Barone in Love's Labor's Lost, our first episode of this miniseries, is almost exactly the exact same character as the main character in this, Benedict. And they were both played by Kenneth Branagh. <gasps> and they were both played by Kenneth Branagh. KB? By Kind Bud? By Kind exactly. Bud. Exactly. KB? <laughs> but He's i have fine. to say um leggett and i texted back and forth as we watched the movie on separate days and um this is one that i'm not sure it's uh translates as well to this day and age did you know that there was a production of this within the uh, it was like six or seven years ago which had james earl jones at the ripe old age of eight thousand playing benedict Right. Really? Great. Yeah. Awesome. I'd watch him do anything. I'd watch yeah. him read the phone book. Yeah, all day, every day. My only criticism of, of that Branow movie is that out of all of his Shakespeare movies, it's the least cinematic. And I don't know if it's because uh, the comedies lend them don't lend themselves to it, but it's, that film it's, makes it's, me want to go on vacation. It, it feels. Gonna, I don't hate. I don't. 
that's okay. I don't hate it. It feels like it was rehearsed, and then they went mm. to location and shot. The first oh. five minutes of this movie, I have to disagree with you. <laughs> well, because it's after that, you're totally right. Before that, <laughs> I will give you all of the bathing scenes are yeah, extra oh my God. <laughs> extraordinary. Huge deal for me. I love that shit. I love. I like. I was telling CJ through text. I was like, that fucking first five minutes of that movie is truly like, I will watch it on loop. Like I would watch it for two hours on loop for fun. You don't you don't get any Denzel butt. I want some I want some Denzel butt if I'm gonna get it all. You're right. I want some Denzel butt. I want a little bit I want a little Emma Thompson butt. Less coin purses. Less coin purses, please. Why do you hate coin purses? Oh I'll put coins in any purse if I'm being frank. Um We know I'm just I'm just that generous. Uh ask my first wife. It gets to something that I find really actually interesting about, I mean, specifically Shakespeare and its adaptation of film, that film is a medium that is visual and that you learn about about people by their behavior. But the actual text of the plays, you have people coming on stage and saying things almost almost verbatim, like, wow, sure is nice to be in... Verona right now on this day in May, and it's it's primarily an auditory medium by which you learn the details of these characters and by which you learn the details of the plot. And so it seems so bizarre to me that somebody would read a Shakespeare script and go, I can make this a movie because they're just the exact opposite in so many ways. Can I jump in with a nerdy interjection? Because I... I listened to a TED talk on what Shakespeare. What else is this podcast but nerdy interjection? <laughs> Girl, I love you so much, Bailey. Girl. <laughs> um, but one of the things that this dude pointed out, he's like, for the first 300 years of Shakespeare, when people talked about seeing Shakespeare, they talked about hearing the play. Mm-hmm. I heard Hamlet last night. Mm-hmm. I heard Much Ado last night. Right. It wasn't until we get to the eight, uh, uh, 19th century that we start saying... I saw a play. Right. I saw a play, but I'm, and, 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 and I'm not knocking. I'm not knocking Much Ado. I'm just saying that out of all of his particular Shakespeare ones, it just it it just felt a little visually flat. But I True. love all of the performances. I even love Keanu because it's pre. It's it's. I do too. Yeah. Oh, no. I think he's miscast because he's not that guy. Like you need yeah. a prick. Yeah. Um, he's too nice. I want to hang out with him. He's too nice. He's yeah, good exactly. when he's deadpan, but as soon as he starts getting, he has to emote. It's just yeah. he uses his hands too much, and it's a little awkward. I he's think. not an emoter, you know. He's it, which is right. He is miscast. I'd love to see him in a role that was just a stoic kind of like a. Even if it wasn't a a um, happy person, like or like a, a a kind person, an evil like an Angelo. Um, mm. in, oh, in, that's cool. Yeah, you know, he'd be really great nationally. Yeah, yeah. In measure, right? Or yeah. like things like that where he just gets to be stoic and there's a lot going on behind well, the so, eyes. Sure. He's so mannequin in so many ways. In, in And that can be used to both good and ill because we, we, we want a character in any play or in any film where we can kind of sub, we substitute ourselves into. And yeah. he can be that in a bunch of different ways and i feel like he's always been substituted for like the guy that we want to be right the guy who shoots guns right. to kill people because that person harmed a dog 
John Wick, in case people John Wick. The right. Yeah, yeah. But we don't really see him as the substitute for us for like, like, oh, that person said one bad thing, so I guess I better ruin their life. <laughs> sure, mm -hmm. right, absolutely. I think I think you're right. The miscast is a problem. What would y'all feel about? Is there anything to switching he and Denzel? Huh? M maybe. <laughs> It's 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 so it's so great to see it like him and Brian Blessed opposite each other in a scene. He's so well focused and 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 Brian Blessed's just big Brian Blessed and, and yeah. but their energies hit and it works, you know. And I, yeah, sure. I mean, honestly, I, I would have switched. I would I would put him as Claudio and Robert Sean Leonard and interesting that. that ah. uh, that might have been a better one because I don't like him. I'm not. I don't like Robert Sean Leonard because he seems. I don't know him. I'm not. I'm not dissing on him. Talking shit. Yeah, I'm talking shit. Come on, Robert Sean Leonard. Bring it, bro. And I want to fight Robert Sean Leonard in an alley. So um, <laughs> let's move forward. I, I like I said before. I think in our first episode, I saw an uh, one that was out of college. Um, I don't even know where, like in Iowa or something. We had to drive really far, Nebraska, and it was um, wanna... it was much ado set on a plantation, and it was really racist and hard to watch. And we just and everybody was wearing like Civil War Southern like gray, and nice. we were like, this is bad. What is happening here? It had nothing to say. I didn't understand. Well, I was about to say my favorite, I like Much Ado has one of my favorite scenes in all of Shakespeare, and it's the scene between Beatrice and Benedict. It's what, so it's so hot. Absolutely. Just the the whole start with confessing love for each other, and then all of a sudden she's like, "By the way, kill your best friend." I just it's a great scene. I've oh yeah. There was someone, and it was my junior year. Two other people in my class got to do that scene for Shakespeare. It was picked for them, and I was always so jealous. I think had like a Rosalind I, scene or something. I I did I did it as well, like a, a for acting class in your sophomore year or something. I um, one of the trippiest things ab about it, I saw a fantastic production here in the city in Los Angeles around two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Just right. just a little black box production had ten people in it, and they just nailed it. It clipped along. Everybody was great in it. Like, I think that one of the biggest challenges of doing Shakespeare is that it's like a Jenga. Like the third spear, and we've talked about this before, the third spear carrier has to be good. Like you can't, you, you can't have any weak, weak links in any of it because the plot lines keep going and switching back and forth and all that. So right. for, to see a show where everybody hit it, there was double casting, but I can't remember all of it. But I remember just like walking out going, that's great theater. These people didn't have no money. <laughs> they they worked mm -hmm. their asses off. I think I, I, I'm guessing that it was uh, a theater of people who had all gone to undergrad or grad school together. Mm -hmm. um, and it just was like, boom, like everybody was just great in it. And I think that's what I like about it. I think I, I don't want to say it's an easy play to do. But I think it's an easy play to 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 do really well in hmm. terms well, of this stuff. I, I think you're hitting on something that I truly believe about Shakespeare that there's no there's no subtext in Shakespeare whatsoever. The instant the character walks on stage, they have something to say, and even those teeny tiny characters. I mean, I mean, there are people who will fill it out and try and put a hundred people on stage, but the actual languaged characters, characters that have lines they almost never say bullshit. 
they say things like, oh, by the way, the king is dead. And it, it completely shifts the world of the play in a, in a significant and meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And when characters have soliloquies, when, sequir- when characters have anything, there, there's no like, oh, also, I'm also saying this. It's always, by the way, this is true. And I believe this to be true. And this has changed my perspective or the world's perspective in a really tangible, meaningful way. It's like watching a soap opera in the most meaningful way, where it's like a character comes on screen when you're watching, you know, Days of Our Lives or any of the telenovelas, and you and you have the feeling in your heart that you're like, oh shit, is somebody about to die? Because now I have a new character on stage, and I don't know if they're going to tell me something good or something bad. Right, yeah. Um, this play is fine. No, I like it. I, uh, I'd like to play Dogberry someday. I think the whole, like, the the idea that maybe that these roles are, you know, uh, to tie him to Falstaff or to whoever else that might be like a Ruben, Rubenesque, larger kind of funny character, I think is legit. Yeah. And those all fit in my wheelhouse, I feel like. So that's the character that I like, you know, I think the Michael Keaton performance is fantastic in that film to speak to the like simpleness or simplicity of it. Yeah. I think like high schools should be tackling this Mm -hmm. one. Like this one's fun and it's easy and it has just enough like, risque kind of like mm, flirtatious but also kind of chaste <laughs> talk and like <laughs> and bathing scenes throw that in no that's only in the movie but you could do it but he got that you know but what's great is he he Fuck picked it. a very specific time and place that's generic enough to to us that it it doesn't matter and he researched it and he that's what he found that that's how things worked you I know, have a question. So the soldiers come in, everybody get bathed up, and they're going to party that night, get to clean <laughs> genitals. I have a question. I've never had an answer, but I'm going to try. <laughs> Who's more important in this play? Beatrice and Benedict, or Hero, and whatever that guy's name is that, that's on the other side of Hero? Claudio. Claudio. Claudio, excuse Claudio. me. Yes. What, what, who's more important? Hero. Who, who's more important? Beatrice. Well, to the plot, to the plot, you could argue that Hero and Claudio are more important to the plot. No, but, but that but show is about Benedict seri- and Beatrice. Well, it's a serious question: is it put yourself as a groundling in that theater, and who are you more invested in? And then put yourself in in the in the seat of in fifteen ninety eight when we assumed this play was written and premiered somebody on the second balcony up who's watching this play, who do you, whose story do you most connect with and which one do you watch more? And what is the intersection of those two things? And is that, I'm, I'm revealing my hand a little bit, but is that what makes Shakespeare great? Is the fact that we as audience members have to experience people who are better than us, quote unquote, in the sense of socioeconomic status, and people who are ourselves or people who are worse than us, socioeconomic, quote unquote, status, and ourselves? I would also throw in there that it, it changes with time. I think that 
based on age and experience, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm n not too far away from playing Leonardo. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, it's not, it's coming. Like, I see it down the road, and, and <laughs> which is great. Like, I, yeah, I'd love to play Leonardo. I'd love to, you know, oh, I'd love to play Benedict. Like, it. My favorite Leonardo I've seen actually was in the 2012 Joss Whedon film. Oh yeah, uh, Clark. Yeah, Greg yeah. That. Of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. What did you um, think of? Which maybe means that Much Ado is connected to the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe. I'm gonna if not if not the Buffy. But are they? But but are they in the Buffy verse? Uh, what, what is it? Um, there's the uh, everything is tied to that one. There's a there's a a. a uh, uh, a oh. soap opera. Uh, 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 there's a hospital, and there's a boy who looks into a snow globe and sees it's the Saint Elsewhere. Thank you, Saint, Saint, Saint Elsewhere. Elsewhere. And everything in the television cinematic universe, including the X Files, gets tied to Saint Elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all sounds like a fun K-hole all... to go down someday. For uh, me. <laughs> What did um, you think? But did anybody else watch the Joss Whedon I did. Movie? I was a, the black yeah, and white gonna, one. Did you like that? Um, <laughs> I, you know what? I didn't hate it. There's a couple good. There's a couple like the, you know what I loved about it was the was was the idea of it. Hey, I'm gonna invite everybody over to my house and I'm gonna pick up my 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 handy cam or my iPhone and we're gonna shoot a Shakespeare movie in five days. Like that's what it was. Like it. It was yeah. really fast and thrown together. And I wish more people would do that, especially like celebrities or anybody. People on the level of Joss. You know, yeah, who could just go, hey, you know, let's go do much ado. Let's go do as you like it this weekend. Yeah. And that's kind of what Vanya on 42nd Street yeah, absolutely. was. Absolutely. Yeah. Yo, hey, uh, uh, Wallace Shawn, let's fucking shoot this. <laughs> let's find somebody and shoot this thing. They're like, Julianne Moore, great. You know, that's yeah, the shit. And, and so, yeah, just as the experiment. And it's cool that, like, because I was a huge Angel and Buffy fan. So, like, seeing, you know, some of those actors, you know, you know, it, yeah. it's not perfect, but it's it's a fun little ride, especially if you know it. I feel like that's I don't know if you have to have seen sure. and know anything about Shakespeare to dig Branagh's version. But I think you do have to know much ado in order to do we. I think you're right. I haven't seen it. I saw it like around the time it came out, like 2013, yeah. 2014. Yeah, same, same but... here. Yeah. There's, there's this thing about Shakespeare, and he's not singular in this. There are other writers, not just in the English language, but in all sorts of other languages too, where they've reached a certain level of notoriety where, where there becomes this self-referential kind of, sure. hey, audience, you have an expectation, and I'm going to right. interact with with that expectation, which I personally, sure. as a viewer, find off-putting and frankly annoying, because I'm like, I don't, I don't give a shit what you think that I think. I want you to tell me a story that I find entertaining. And if I'm being frank, Shakespeare's already told the story, so you need to get the fuck out of the way. Is there anything in this play that you find anyone? Uh, specifically, actually, CJ, because this is your pick. Is there anything in this that you find problematic now, like that you would feel that you would need to change or adapt? I mean, uh, if you were putting it uh, on, Leggett and I were talking about this. Yeah, this yeah. one, this is another one that just focuses on someone's virgin, like on hero's virginity the whole time, and just sure. the whole as a prize. Well, and, and I, I mean, a, I will say, like modern days, something that you notice now that 
perhaps they didn't notice back then was how Claudio has like some serious white male rage issues. Like he got mad (laughs) at every moment that he could get mad. And then that poor girl, someone makes up a story about her, about her virginity. They don't believe her. She's abused by her soon to be husband and father. Like it's just, and then, and then the, the part of course that bugs me is the very end where it's like, listen, I'm really sorry. Okay, let's get married. <laughs> so Shakespeare is, if I'm going to be frank, an open-minded misogynist. I think that there are aspects of his plays that are clearly misogynistic and that he clearly represents a point of view that women characters at the very least that he writes are incapable of certain amounts of agency and certain amounts of opinions which are completely incompatible with our our current understanding uh, of feminism and what women are capable of of which i want to point out that i thoroughly believe that women and men are completely equal people but i think that that shakespeare falls short in a lot of different ways not just of uh, of equal representation of sexes, but also equal representations of race. But I think a lot of people give Shakespeare a pass because of how great his writing is on a lot of different social aspects that I don't know necessarily he deserved. I Well, I mean, we've talked about this with other shows that we've, other playwrights that we've covered too. Like, the, I understand he was writing a really, really, really long time ago and standards have changed and things have changed all over the world. I Now in this day and age, prizing some girl's virginity is not a really good plot point. Would you change that if you directed it? Like, would you adapt it somehow? Would you? I don't know what I would do if I was directing it. Because yeah, you could obviously do that. You could switch it around or you could point at it, which would make its own statement in and of itself, so. For Much Ado specifically, I would just cut it. Because they, they have so much, so many other exchanges, Claudio in particular, talks about praises her and how much he loves her and all that kind of stuff. I mean, she doesn't have a lot of lines. She doesn't have a lot of agency either. And so I think you can just cut the virginity thing and and play it out with the humor in mind. At the same time, that element also, I think, gives weight to Beatrice when she asks Benedict to to kill, uh, to kill Claudio because because such an affront has been presented. But I think just to go back to one of the things that I talked about, I don't know if it was in this episode or in an earlier episode, the idea that, you know, there are some feminist writers who can feel him struggling with that, mm-hmm. struggling with how to portray women. Again, there's this sad truth that the most that a woman could aspire to, her biggest success would be in her marriage how good her husband could be and so you know i think that that almost seems like an inspiration for for beatrice for that character and for having her be so smart and so sharp in on point through the whole thing it's it's not an easy thing and i think that it'll it'll continue to be a challenge as people continue to do it it's why i think taming of the shrew i'm like i just don't see a solution to that problem Right. But I told you we did the you taming did. of the churl, yeah. right? Set on Mars, yeah. where it was all women except one man. And it was completely gender swapped, but it was set on Mars and it was beautiful. Well, it's, it's I can see that, but I've seen an all woman version that I that was just like, I don't know what you're doing here. No, it wasn't all women. Oh. 
It was we changed it to the taming of the churl, and it was all females, as if Mars was an all female planet, except this man was just dropped there. Gotcha. Right. Okay. So we okay. did we did like a whole prologue that was not Shakespearean. That was like him being dropped off. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. It's great. They can the kids conceptualize it, like I said before. Well, um, I I'm I starting to realize I like this play well, more and more I, as I we talk about it. I think it speaks to something we, we talk about and we, and we throw the word out there like it's a Hershey's candy bar, right? Everybody's heard of Hershey's. Everybody has heard of the universality of Shakespeare. And I think that there's a more nuanced interrogation of that that can happen, which is that the universality of Shakespeare is not necessary that he's equally representing everybody, but that there is a challenging representation period of of masculinity of femininity of race of gender of religion if you look at measure for measure that if you go down the line in shakespeare he is taking a really strong position on basically every topic you can think of that is contemporary both to his time and to our time and the, the universality of it is not necessarily what he's saying about that topic but that we have to deal with it because he articulates some kind of story really, really well. And it's our job to interpret it and figure out what it is that we find meaningful in Much Ado About Nothing as well as Macbeth, as well as something as seemingly silly as, uh, you know, um, Two Gentlemen of Verona, where it's just two <laughs> straight white guys arguing over a single woman. Like, you have to put yourself in the middle of it and figure out what side you want to take and defend it, whatever that position happens to be, whether it's for what he's saying or against. You guys, I auditioned, I was very uh, lucky to get to audition for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And they asked for two monologues and a song because they were doing Guys and Dolls that summer and I was auditioning for Nicely Nicely. Nice. And I went in and uh, I did a Benedict monologue and the guy stopped me in the middle of it. And he said, thank you for being a friend. <laughs> All right, guys, so we have another Golden Girls trivia moment here right now. Uh, CJ Merriman kicking ass at 40 points. Uh, no one else has any points. <laughs> uh, here we go. On what night of the week did the show air when it was Thursdays. on? Thursdays. Thursday was what I was going to guess. You know what? It wasn't <gasps> Thursday. It was a prime slot. Friday night. Saturday, Saturday night. night. Saturday night? Wow. People don't oh, watch a, TV on Saturday night unless you're quarantining. Wow. That's They must have been quarantining at the <laughs> late 80s. All right, guys. I mean, is there any final thoughts anyone has on much edu? Is there anything pulsating in your um, loins about it? <laughs> I no. I think it's. I think it's <laughs> ultimately. It, well, my 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 loins are pulsating because of you people. I, I appreciate there, that. Yeah. I appreciate. Well, um, so well. <laughs> Surprise. No, I just think it's. I, I think much ado is a very accessible one. Like. If 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 I if I was introducing students or or you know novices uh, to it I to Shakespeare I this might be one of the ones I would show them or or give them because I begin think with yeah yeah it's a, it, it's good beginner Shakespeare sure, sure as sure, opposed sure. To, as opposed to like Winter's Tale which is way off here the... kids winner's tale ah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> they like each other and they don't the and then yeah, the statue yeah. comes to life um spoiler holy shit 
Anyway, that's real. Um, <laughs> and my rant. Siege, you got a final thought on this one? This was your choice. I want to know. Less coin purses. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> hey, that's Branagh. That's Branagh. That's not Shakespeare. <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, that concludes, I think, our second episode of our mini-series on Shakespeare's comedies. Now, that means that we're going to have to pick up on a third episode so that you got more theater, theater juices for you coming next <laughs> week. Um, you said juices and I couldn't and keep it together. Sorry. Yeah, is that gross or is that exciting? I don't know. But thank you for joining us, and we'll be back next week. Our guest will be Tim Kovacs again. And also, thank you. Pam Quinn and Pam. Ryan Thomas Johnson. Here, Pam here. wrote a song for this miniseries that I love. It's really, even though it's Shakespeare's comedies, it's this really nice. Oh no, it fits the comedies. It doesn't feel like a, it doesn't feel sad. It does. It definitely feels happy. So it, it fits the comedies, in my opinion. But thank you, Pam. Thank you, Ryan Thomas Johnson, for our theme. Thank you, Annie Baker, for writing our script. Yeah. And um, I can't wait to have a beer with Annie Baker when this yeah. is all Man, over. The, with. the the uh dot 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 and um dot dot dots that yeah. she provided me were just beatific. Yeah, they fit in my mouth really well, which also means yeah, they fit in cried. my butt really well. Follow Whoa! us on all the things. And yeah. as always, uh, mouths and butts. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, see you next time, everybody. That is it. Tonight, I'm out of here. Tonight, tonight. There's only us tonight. Us. Boy meets girl meets boy meets girl meets girl meets boy meets girl meets boy meets girl plan in place sets the pace so